As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We live in a world where the news is at our fingertips, where we're one click or swipe away from the latest headlines. But how often do we stop swiping and scrolling and just listen? It's the difference between knowing what's in the headlines and understanding how it got there. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take, Al Jazeera's daily news podcast, where we bring you the context and the people behind the global stories that matter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Rick Harp. Host and producer of Media Indigena. Welcome to Shortcuts. Hey, happy to be here. Glad to have you here. Rick, today we are going to talk about how Ontario First Nations are getting their first raise from the government since 1850. <laughs> We're going to talk about the plan to buy McLean's by the only people who still read McLean's, the journalists who work at McLean's. <laughs> and finally... We're going to talk about Rex Murphy versus Jamal Khashoggi, Battle of the Corpses. Bad taste? I'm okay with it. This episode of Shortcuts is brought to you by Kira Wade, Johanna Tremblay, Liam Hanna, Michael Valpe, Olivia Darwin, Bart Bonneau, Paul Carney, and Andy B. I'm Andy, and I'm a librarian from Whitby, Ontario. I support Canada Land because as someone who's in a country that constantly focuses on news and events from south of the border, I appreciate hearing about what's going on in our own backyard. Plus, the world needs more podcasts hosted by sassy Jewish dudes. And Rick, as I mentioned earlier, uh, this episode's brought to everybody by FreshBooks. You are an entrepreneur. Are you a freelancer as well, Rick? On occasion. Not, not often enough to my liking, but yes. How are you getting your invoicing needs met? I am. I've, I've tricked out a, an Excel sheet and <laughs> nothing spectacular. Rick. Rick, there's, there's a bit. I know, I know. Have you Rick. heard of me? Have you listened to the... No, there's... You know, look... 
Look, do what you want to do. I'm not going to put you to a decision right now. I just want you to know that you have options. There is a better way, and you can try it out for free for 30 days. FreshBooks is the best way to organize your business, to do your invoicing, and also just to keep track of what's coming in and what's going out. And it makes tax time super, super simple. It'll save you a ton of time. It is worth the money that it costs, but you don't have to give them a dime because, as I say, it's free for 30 days. You can see if it's uh, if it's something for you by going to freshbooks.com slash CanadaLand. And at some point they may say, how did you hear about us? At which point Rick and anyone else out there, why not say Canada Land? All right. So, Rick, this is a story that came out kind of in that media lull, December 27th, when no one's really paying that much attention to the news. <laughs> Ontario First Nations win case over historic $4 per person benefit from provincial federal governments. Can you walk me through this? Because I, I this is one that I kind of had to like do a double then a triple take because I didn't even know there was such a thing. And then the fact that it hasn't changed since, maybe you could offer us a, a quick summary of, of what happened. Oh, sure. Ask the indigenous guy to talk about the indigenous story. Anyway, uh, <laughs> no, you know what? We, yeah, we talked about this uh, way back earlier on in the process. Well, way back. It, it hasn't been that long. Uh, and, and it's a fascinating case because in some ways it cuts to the heart of what is supposedly the relationship, the nation-to-nation relationship between what is currently called Canada and Indigenous people who've been, you know, in this part of the world for millennia. And, you know, it essentially, it, think of it almost like a, a kind of a royalty um, or a, a treaty, which is literally what it is between, let's say, uh, the USA and Canada, that kind of thing. It's it's an agreement between two parties, between two sovereign entities to talk about, okay, we're going to share the land and we're going to share the bounty of that land according to an agreed-upon formula. Essentially, it's a promise to top up treaty payments as resource revenues rise. So, and that's why I sort of draw the, the rough analogy to, to a royalty. And of course, as more resources were exploited to greater degrees, uh, it stands to reason there'd be a bigger pot to share and, you know, both parties would, would benefit. It would be a mutual benefit agreement. And I think what it really does is it reveals that treaties are, are less transactional. That is to say, a handover of control and, and power and decision-making power and an access and more relational. It's an agreement for the terms of how people will relate to each other going forward. So it's it's no small thing, but you know, in some ways it's 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 very straightforward. And, you know, we're all keen and, and, and aware of the concept of inflation. And, you know, four dollars back in the in the late eighteen hundreds bought a heck of a lot more than it does today. But for some reason this share, this is to say the annuity was not adjusted for inflation. We can get into, you know, a history lesson as to why that's probably not the case, but it could set a precedent because from what I understand, uh, there's something like, uh, so in this case, there's 30,000 First Nations individuals who, you know, signed to this particular treaty, the 1850 Robinson-Huron Treaty. Uh, Apparently, there's something like over half a million similarly situated folks who could stand to benefit from a precedent standpoint with regard to to similar treaties and similar arrangements. Could be huge. In fact, there is uh, a sense that there's going to be a ripple effect in Saskatchewan. This may affect modernization of, of the deal there. And I didn't know it was half a million throughout the country. I'll tell you why this kind of like 
I, I kind of felt like, wow, that sounds like it's a big deal mm-hmm. for a small news story that didn't get that much conversation. And maybe the timing might have something to do with that. And it wasn't just like the fact that this idea that, that it got set at $4 in, in 1850. And now it's like, it made me think like, huh, like, what do you modernize that to? Is that $400? And then I was, just, I have so many questions. Do, do people actually go and get their $4 every year? I mean, it seems like such an insult, but you know, $4 is $4. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> um <laughs> But then it, it kind of like from a media perspective had me thinking about how we talk mm. about the financial relationship between government and First Nations. And there's such a narrative of, oh, First Nations want more from the government. They're asking for more. They want handouts. Yeah. And then you're like, you're looking at this and it's just like, this is a deal. It's yeah. a partnership, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. And it's about a partnership that wasn't honored. It's like, we're going to give you X amount of money now. We're going to give you this much money per year per person. We're going to raise that every year because of inflation. And yeah. we're going to cut you in. It's like points on the back end. You know, If this partnership works out and there's lots of resources and we make a lot of money off of this land, we're partners. And you're going to benefit on the back end of this. And what I'm reading here is, is just like a reflection of the truth of like, yeah, it, this was not honored. The deal was not honored. And it's and the, and the courts have ruled that it's not too late. Like, I think that there's also this idea of like, oh, you know, those treaties, that was then. Mm-hmm. We're not responsible for what Canada agreed to back then. <laughs> you know? Or, you know, we didn't think you Indians would stick around and survive like you have. I mean, come on, really? Do you think we really meant what we signed? Forget about it. No, I mean, it, it's. I think it's very interesting because to me, this is what reconciliation looks like. This is what, if anything could encapsulate what reconciliation is about is, well, we had all these people come from overseas and they're not going away. So let's create an agreement with, a, again, a, an agreed upon formula to share the bounty of the land, presuming there's more than enough for everybody. And this seems, you know, in some ways, I'm surprised that the liberal government has not kind of pounced on this and tried to appropriate this and say, this is what we want to do with with oil and gas. Come on, people. This is great. But, uh, yeah, I know it, it, it's interesting that this kind of didn't land with a thud. It just didn't land anywhere in, in the larger consciousness. I take your point that it's in that weird holiday lull. But, you know, as soon as you start talking about treaties, I, I find that most editors, perhaps presumptuously on the part of the readers, think most people's eyes will glaze over. And um, given the currency of, of reconciliation, quote unquote, that's in the air, I'm surprised that someone hasn't tried to kind of interweave that with, with those discourses and say, folks, we don't have to go very far for an example of, of what that might look like and how that might work. But isn't that a conscious disconnect? I mean, you know, hmm. as much as Justin Trudeau has wrapped himself in the rhetoric of reconciliation, it's sort of like right. where the rubber meets the road of like what nation to nation actually means. You know, it's like, okay, yeah, $4, that's deplorable per person. And you know, you're only talking about 30,000 beneficiaries under this treaty. So if that were to go up to 40 or even 400, I think a lot of people would be like cheering. Yeah. But I, if you actually start talking about like, no, 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 we're talking about dividing up the benefits of resource exploitation and you're talking serious coin, you're like, whoa, 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 hold on a second. Uh, we wanted to do nice things, but yeah. you know, <laughs> Not- to actually that's, that's a bridge too far. Yeah, no, it absolutely, absolutely. I can't dispute anything you're saying there. I mean, when we looked at this topic back in October of 2017, we did try to do the math based on things like an inflation calculator or, you know, estimates of purchasing power. And the estimates we came up with were, you know, it's it was... $4 in 1875 terms were around anywhere from 87 to $107 in, in current terms, which may not sound like a huge amount more, and that's 
probably a grossly conservative adjustment, but still, it's a difference between $120,000 and $3.1 million, which becomes, like you say, a considerable chunk of change. And yeah, no, it's um, to me, it's it's a metric by which to hold the government accountable. And, and it's a great, I think, piece of fodder for the media to bring to the attention of of certain folks. And I mean, this is actually not coincidentally going to be an interesting thing for for Doug Ford. I mean, this is going to be his first test uh, in terms of Indigenous relations. Ultimately, it's a political decision to appeal this or not. We'll see what he does. I have some uh, suspicion, but we'll, we won't, <laughs> I won't try to forecast the future there. Well, I, I guess we'll see. In terms of how we kind of cover this stuff going mm-hmm. forward, I wonder, Rick, what you have to say about how this might be covered differently in a way that integrates this with this conversation about reconciliation, as you're suggesting, because like there is this disconnect. There is a willingness to engage with symbolically the nationhood of First Nations and symbolically reconciliation, but practically we want to create a different category. So this is just some dull story you know, that kind of gets overlooked over the holidays and, and and it doesn't really have anything to do with not just reconciling, but like really all these buzzwords, nation to nation and like actually practically engaging with the relationship. We're still kind of putting them in two different news categories because I think we do have them in two different categories in our minds. And, you know, I, I noticed when you said earlier, when I said, uh, you know, that the, the deal had been, uh, we cheated on the deal. <laughs> and then you brought up if the deal was in good faith to begin with, you know, I almost feel like we've kind of somehow done some strange algebra where we've accepted that all of those, you know, those evil white people way back then, not people like us, <laughs> they may have schemed and cheated, but you know, whatever, we ended up here and here we are and it's not our fault and we're not responsible for the lies they told or, you know, the deals they pulled out of. What would it look like to take those things out of two separate silos and to cover this holistically? Oh man, I'm tempted to say that's a great rhetorical question. Uh, but um <laughs> It's always a challenge because, as I've put it in other contexts, you have to start where your audience is. So as a publisher, it's a very challenging thing. So on the other hand, you know, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission sort of threw down the gauntlet, if you will, or threw down the challenge, indicating that, you know, although they named specific media, CBC and APTN, they were kind of, I think, at large implying that all media need to step up their game and find ways to tell the story of the quote-unquote relationship or relationships I think that we're seeing better coverage. I'm taking some comfort in the fact that uh, this doesn't sound any, any easier for you. <laughs> yeah, because it, it, it ain't easy. <laughs> like Making it real, is uh, it's a hell of a thing. It is a hell of a thing. I think there are many impediments to, to doing this in terms of where the audience is at. It raises larger questions about, you know, what the job of journalists is to do. If you're, if you're simply to report things as they are, on the one hand, but on the other hand, I think it's also understood that we're we're trying to talk about the context in which things happen, the the things that let you know the the what and the so what, and I don't know I wouldn't want to like privilege or isolate this type of situation from many other situations like climate change. We could arguably say, you know, the media is dropping the ball on that too in terms of getting people to understand. I mean, these are these are big major. Uh, what do they call them? Wicked problems, wicked challenges, and do they? Uh, that works. <laughs> not to get too existential on it, but it's not a challenge confined to this. I mean, when you have a settler colonial state, and most people will bristle at both of those words, right? How do you convey the reality of that to people when, for most people, they're just trying to get their heads around those two notions? I mean, all I can do with my response is to convey the nature of the challenge as to how it's done. Um, 
you know, I could be self-serving and a bit silly and say, listen to the Media Indigenous podcast. But To hear this explored at greater length, you, people should listen to the Media Indigenous podcast. <laughs> you know what? I was uh, hesitating earlier to speculate on what the Ford government's response is going to be. And, and I, I'm not going to take any specific guesses. But I think that really at the heart of this, there is a conflict. And mm-hmm. on the one side, there are people who talk a big game about reconciliation and might even use words like settler colonialism who might be challenged at the hypocrisy inherent yeah. in that of like, are you actually willing to give anything up? Are you actually willing to walk the talk? Yeah. And on the other hand, there is an unspoken rejection of that, that people, you know, they, they, I'm sure they consider it a, a question of political correctness, but I think that there are a lot of people out there who do not consider themselves settler colonialists, who do not consider themselves in debt, who do not consider themselves beholden to these treaties whatsoever. Mm-hmm. I think that Doug Ford represents those people in one way or the other, whatever the messaging around it is, I think that the action will essentially be like, you know, fuck you. Like the court said this, we're going to find another way. And, and, and there's a lot of Canadians who I think are just going to increasingly emboldened to say uh, enough of this lip service. Uh, you know, we actually don't consider this a nation to nation relationship and we do not consider ourselves the people who are responsible for these treaties. And I, those two mindsets, I think, can't but come into conflict in the years ahead. You know, like I, I think that's what's going to happen next. Well, I mean, if Indigenous people relied upon the good graces of non-Indigenous people, we wouldn't have gotten very far. <laughs> so I think, you know, I try to focus on the indigenous end of things and, and try to find sympathetic and allied individuals and institutions on, on the non-indigenous side. And we got this far. We'll just continue to go further. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world. And BetterHelp is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they don't just reach out for that help. And one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if you're, if you're chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities, you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself with more time because you have a better sense of what's important to you. Like it's an investment that can pay off even in that practical way of, of, organizing your life a bit better. These are some of the advantages in in the long run of having something like BetterHelp in your life. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to the show, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Once again, it's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm going to recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try it now and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, canister, a metal scoop, along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. All right, I had to talk with you about this because the fate of McLean's magazine and some other Rogers magazines 
you know, there there was a deal. Rodgers doesn't want these. I mean, the whole thing has been that Rodgers is just like they just wanted to not be the people who kill it. Mm. This storied Canadian news magazine. And so they tried to sell it to the Hockey News and that fell through and they're just trying to unload McLean's and others. And again, in the holiday lull on December 30th, Susan Krasinski at the Globe and Mail had a nice little scoop that a group of Rogers employees, specifically McLean's journalists, have put in a bid to buy McLean's magazine and the other magazines. And, they, and they've promised that if they win, if their bid succeeds, they will protect the jobs of the current employees of Rogers Publishing. And I thought that was interesting because the prospect of employee ownership as newspapers and magazines go under that, they still have like, the people that they actually have real worth to and not just like assets to be strip mined are journalists and readers. And it would be nice to see employee ownership taking over. Uh, Allison Uncles, the editor-in-chief of McLean's, is part of this bid. I know that a lot of journalists there think very highly of her. And uh, Scott Gilmore. Scott <laughs> Gilmore is also um, part of this bid. And Any thoughts on Scott Gilmore, Rick? Uh, well, again, you know, I've encountered his, his writings from a particular vantage point, uh, simple-minded columns about First Nations poverty suggesting, you know what the solution is? Just leave the reserve en masse and then go live in the city where you can uh, experience uh, various forms of socioeconomic discrimination there. Um, <laughs> I, you know, if, if his, the quality of his analysis about other issues beyond Indigenous issues is at the, of the same caliber, I, I definitely fear for, for, this, uh, for those employees who are tying their can to this particular initiative. But be that as it may, he may be a good businessman. I mean, he may be ruthless and able to make it work. I'm curious where the capital is going to come from. I mean, this piece really raises lots of questions and, and has, you know, tantalizingly few details. And I'd say the big one is, well, what exactly is an employee proposal? We've only seen the two names. What What is an employee group? Is it a, a worker co-op where they'll sort of have uh, priorities assigned based on some deeply democratic process? Or is it something more modest in terms of profit sharing? I, I don't know. And I don't know. I mean, what is their business model? How is it meaningfully different than the status quo, that the, the dwindling path of ad revenues that arguably led these magazines to where they are now? I have, I have many questions. Also, his connections to a liberal cabinet minister, uh, Catherine McKenna, uh, the Minister of Environment and Climate Change, you know, depending on how that federal assistance to media outlets shakes out. I mean, that could be seen as weird. So that, that's what I wonder about the proposal as a whole and, and about Mr. Gilmore in particular. That connection being that uh, they're married. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, sorry. <laughs> that, that sort of loose, casual connection. <laughs> yeah. But he, he like went on some weird tour of Canada trying to launch some new conservative movement of some kind. Right. You know, like the questions that, that swirl around media brands as it becomes a buyer's market for mm-hmm. brands that have a lot of value, you know, like if, if it's possible that, that, uh, Newspapers and magazines that nobody really reads them anymore, but everyone knows who McLean's is, and that has some political gravitas. The possibility of that being co-opted, that whatever pennies might be juiced out of it in a perfect scenario where somebody actually figures out a method to to make money off of journalism versus the value they have to any of the many players out there who are trying to have a respected and you know, dignified voice in the national conversation. When you got somebody who's as politically entangled as Gilmore, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's a little uncomfortable. I don't know if we can look at this. I mean, I think Andrew Coyne was celebrating this as just purely like, uh, huzzah, journalists in charge of journalism. That's the way it should be. I'm not sure that uh, Scott Gilmore is a bit more of a complicated character than that. So, like, I have no knowledge that he's doing this for any other reasons, but it's, you know, not somebody who's unaffiliated politically. 
Well, I mean, you know, I, I could see it being quite enticing. I mean, it's it's what gets us all into media in some ways to just feel like we're we have this bold mission. On the other hand, you know, the, the media industry has been subjected to the same dynamics uh, the, of any other industry. Shareholders expecting a high rate of return, and and so I don't know if that same set of expectations is going to be at play here. And if it is, well, I'm not sure what's different other than the novel fact that. Uh, or the novel possibility, rather, that it could be employees in charge of trying to extract exorbitant rates of return from their own work. <laughs> That's just not sustainable, subject to a new business model. And you bring up that this is just very much, we have no idea what the bid is and whether or not it will be successful. The very fact that it got reported in the Globe and Mail, I have to imagine via a leak from those journalists to Susan mm. Krasinski-Robertson at the Globe and Mail, leads me to believe that they're interested in putting pressure on through the public you know, th- through the media, and that their bid might not be the most lucrative bid. I, I guess I'll be a little bit surprised if, if theirs is the winning bid. Yeah. And I guess the question that you'd have to ask in, in each uh, specific case, McLean's, Today's Parent, Hello, or Hello Canada, rather, and Chatelaine, I mean, the quote-unquote, do they deserve to survive question. I mean, that seems to be a separate question. But it is interesting that, I mean, it is of note, and, and, and I understand why why we're discussing it today, I'll be very curious to see the details. I will not have the right to life of Hello Canada impugned or even questioned <laughs> on this program, Rick. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, what can I say? As you know, Indigenous people have an awesome relationship with the Queen and all her ilk. Uh, <laughs> so what can I say? I mean, that, that's You're just what pasting ha- up those red carpet photos, I'm sure. <laughs> exactly. Rick, as a keen and eager listener of Shortcuts each and every episode, you are aware that at some point in each episode, we duly note that which must be duly noted. Do you have something for us today? Well, you know, I've been hearing hither and yon as the calendar turned over from 2018 to 2019 about how the carbon tax is going to be in effect in certain jurisdictions, despite the the, the withdrawal of Ontario, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, New Brunswick. And... You know, I have to wonder about, you know, we talked about the media's capacity to talk about reconciliation, try and incorporate the, the, the meat and potatoes of it when there's a specific proposal on the table. I mean, I think an analogy can be drawn here. I don't know that the media have done a good job of helping to explain and put into proper perspective carbon taxes. And so in some ways, I, I sort of feel like it's it's a bit of a green herring, if I can be cute for a moment. It does, frankly, hurt my head a little bit to try and sift through the different understandings and interpretations of, of its impact, never mind the misunderstandings and the misinterpretations. So I do wonder, is all the fuss over the carbon tax proportionate to the impact it will have? Because that's one of the things I'm not sure about is how are we going to measure its success? I mean, it just seems to be, you know, we talked about McLean's and that infamous cover of these five white male premiers you know, the resistance, quote unquote. And it just seemed to be about the politicking of it. And, you know, there's there's obviously room for that. I like a good partisan scrap as much as the next person, but it's, do we know how it works? Do journalists themselves understand it? But also, I think, is it a bit of a, you know, a green herring in terms of what's actually going to be needed? And so James Wilt, a freelance journalist based out of Winnipeg, like I am, he's recently contributed a piece to Briar Patch that kind of you know, talks about how the carbon tax has sucked up all the media oxygen and really kind of starving other forms and locations of decarbonization, you know, kind of leaving them to the wayside, which are arguably much more substantive and, and critical to 
reversing <laughs> the hyper carbonization of, of the planet. Yeah, we were talking about this on the show recently, and just uh, I guess we've come up with the, the math that in, in a Canadian context, mm-hmm. climate change reform equals carbon tax at this point, and that's where the battle is being fought. And part of my indifference to that news story is I'm uh, you know not all that intrigued in the partisan scrap, nor am I necessarily convinced of the ultimate impact it's going to have yeah. on warming. So it's it's a uh, it's a snoozer for me. You know, it seems like you're suggesting that there's a, a better way to cover this and a larger conversation, and uh, even just from a scientific basis. Uh, a better conversation about how this could be accomplished. Duly noted. <laughs> I have something. Okay. Hit me. I would like to duly note Quillette Magazine, the oh, uh, the Journal of Free right. Thought, edited by John Kay for whoever is left who values free thought, frankly. <laughs> In their ongoing celebration and championing of free thought, they have announced the winners of the Quillette Free Thought Awards. Oh. Each award recipient is an essay written for Quillette. <laughs> well, who better to judge that competition than? <laughs> wow. So they're the, they're the freest thinkers yeah. there are in the world. That's just where their free thought, look, they think freely and without prejudice, and that's where their free thought took them. They, they, it could have been for anyone, but it just so happened that every single recipient of these free thought awards is a Quillette author for a Quillette piece. Look, Rick... You know, I don't mean to single out. The walrus does the same damn thing. It was brought to my attention. Everybody does. Everybody has the Dundees. Everybody has awards for their own organization. When I was at CBC, they used to have these internal awards. Where, and it was like, it didn't matter. Like Each show would get a turn if you were in good graces with the executives. And then, and then there would be like a cheese plate. And, um, you know, the walrus is just a little bit more subtle about it. They call it like the George Slate Awards. And then a bunch of like walrus-affiliated board members and contributors and speakers give awards to walrus contributors for their walrus stories. And so I am not here to dump on Quillette or Walrus or Dunder Mifflin or any company that wishes <laughs> to honor the fine work of its own employees. I am here to duly note that, uh, you know, we have a policy here. Canada does not submit to any Canadian media awards. Just because it's kind of awkward and conflicty for us to be like trying to like win awards for our coverage of media organizations mm-hmm. in competition with those media organizations right, for like right, cash yeah. prizes. So, you know, our employees can submit to whatever they want, but I'm not going to submit anything on behalf of the company. But perhaps, perhaps internally, we can institute the Canada Land Awards for Magnificent Achievement in Canada Land doings. I just need a name for this uh, award ceremony, for this award. And so submissions are open. It's sort of an award uh, ceremony of its, of its own. There will be a winner to anoint and name the annual Canada Land, Canada Land Awards. So uh, please, please, anyone out there, feel free to email me your suggestions. <laughs> wow. It just, uh, yeah, it just sounds like um, they decided to share th- these internal awards that were given out at their Christmas party. And uh, that's some free thinking right there, boy. Duly noted. Okay, here we go. Ready for the last one? Oh, I don't know. I mean, this is just, this is a can of worms, this one. (laughs) (laughs) Rick, I want to talk about a Rex Murphy column. It doesn't happen that frequently. If we must. (laughs) I must. I must. I feel a need. No, a lot of people were appalled by this column where, again, in the lull, December 28th, Rex Murphy, he's got a hot one for us. Time Magazine is wrong. Today's journalists are not guardians of the truth. (laughs) <laughs> Hot take by Rex Murphy. Burn. He begins by, sl- <laughs> yeah. Oh, woo. So Rex Murphy is taking on journalists and Time Magazine. He begins by writing, Time, 
that tattered, shrunken revenant of a once popular news magazine continues in its endless decline to delude itself that it is either the authority or the competence to name the person of the year. I don't know why I'm giving Rex that voice. I can't actually do a Rex Murphy voice. And yeah, he's absolutely right. Like, you know, time is, as we all are, a shadow of what it once was. And the audacity of time to think that it has the authority to name a person of the year. On the other hand, like, time's going to do a person of the year. You know, that's sort of their thing. They're going to do that. But that's a long way of saying that he doesn't like Time magazine. I'm digressing wildly here. That's not the point. The point is that he targeted journalists and he was particularly appalled that they put on the cover of the person of the year, Jamal Khashoggi. Mm -hmm. Among others, yeah, on different covers. Among right? others, yeah. It was a like a Marvel superhero thing where there's, <laughs> there there were uh, you know variations of the cover, but but the one that I think was uh, was featured most prominently was of Jamal Khashoggi, and yeah. and Rex takes these swipes at Khashoggi that I was just like, dude, he's writing that he was a stooge of cutter, and mm -hmm. he's no champion of journalism, and I'm reading this, I'm like, what what are you slagging off a dead man for? And a lot of people were really mad at Rex Murphy about that. I have big problems with this column by Rex Murphy. We could talk about that. But I, I was like, he's got to be referring to something. He threw a link in as to where he was getting this from. And that brought me to a Washington Post story where Khashoggi worked, where his yeah. columns appeared. And I got to tell you, I'm not going to say Rex Murphy is right. But did you read this thing in the Post, December 22nd? Again, a story that got totally overlooked where they kind of came clean about everything they've learned about their contributor, Jamal Khashoggi, who I've only read about as this sort of like truth-speaking, brave in person. He's this warm teddy bear of a man, I think one of his colleagues referred to him as. And then in death, you know, his final columns have been repeated and as a clarion call for journalists to speak truth to power, even mm -hmm, in the face mm -hmm. of murder. And I was, I was shocked to read what the Post had to say about Khashoggi. Did you catch wind of this? I did. I took a look at it. I mean, it, it's clear that he has sort of gone in and out of various roles, uh, political roles with the Saudi government. He cultivated connections with a, a foundation that's funded by the Qatar government, which is a, a regional rival to Saudi Arabia. So it raises interesting points about what we expect from a journalist, uh, although, I mean, Khashoggi came to our attention latterly as, as a columnist, not unlike Rex Murphy himself. So, which is, I think, it's an interesting, you know, pot, kettle, black sort of thing. I mean, do we tend to, you know, elevate journalists as, as if they're these uh, you know, heroic men and women who go off to battle? We often do elevate people, we, and journalists seem to be among those who do it the most. So I, you know, I, I think it's a fair and factual point to talk about the cluster of interests that uh, Khashoggi had implicated himself in. I think it's good to have transparency on that. I just wish some people would, ex you know, do that more to Mr. Murphy himself. Well, we tried. That was one of our first. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's hilarious. It's hilarious. Rex Murphy calling anybody else, any other columnist, a stooge for special interests. When, of course, Rex Murphy does paid speaking for the oil and gas industry that he writes about, which he did not disclose and which we had to basically drag him into the spotlight to to reveal that this was going on uh, mm -hmm. as others were doing the same. You know, so, it's you know, that's hypocritical and, and hilarious. Because, I mean, a lot of times in media... There seems to be this pressure to have perfect victims. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, he, you know, he's, he's somewhat compromised. He's not completely disinterested. Uh, is he utterly objective? And so if that's the point we can sort of infer from this thought salad 
that that Murphy has assembled together. It's it's almost like the worst Twitter thread ever. I mean, he he somehow connects this thing with you know slamming the idea of environmental journalism. He talks about the frayed state of relations between the press and Trump, and then brings up this deeply disgraced dude uh, reporter dude from Der Spiegel, and, and then sort of says, "I rest my case." It's like you just juxtaposed a whole bunch of things. Like I. I don't know. Like so therefore fake news. Therefore journalists are not people to celebrate and journalism yeah. is bad now. You hear the mic drop. It's a yeah. ludicrous it's a ludicrous column and it's it, yeah, it's it's just a bunch of stuff that Rex Murphy seems to be aware of this week leading Rex Murphy to the conclusion of uh, yeah, same thing that I thought was true before I knew all this stuff. Absolutely, absolutely. And yet, and yet, and yet. And yet. Like well, you're not even like I won't even give him you said like fair point that Khashoggi had these interests. No, Rex Murphy doesn't make that point fairly. He warps right. the point because the revelations about Khashoggi are that he was, on the one hand, he's been working for this Qatar handler who, like, really embarrassingly for the Post was like, there's this one exchange. And, the, you know, it was the Post that we learned this from. So they came clean once they found mm-hmm. out about it. Mm-hmm. But she was arguably writing his at least one of his columns where she yes. had an idea for one of his columns. And he says, do you have time to write a draft? And she's like, no, you you do your own work. I'll just feed you the talking points, all of which I guess would support the assertion that Jamal Khashoggi was a cutter stooge. But Rex just, you know, very conveniently omits the other revelation from this Washington Post's expose on Khashoggi, I guess, which was that he was petitioning the kingdom of Saud for two million dollars to basically start a like PR think tank to support the kingdom. So I don't know what the guy was up to. He's coming or going. It seems like he was this, uh, you know, exiled, conflicted guy who yeah. was really trying to figure out the best possible way to, you know, I don't think from from what they reported, it doesn't seem like as so simple as he was in the tank for one party or one interest. It seems like he was really struggling to figure out who he was and what role he wanted to play in influencing politics. The part that was interesting to me in terms of how this plays out for papers is that, uh, you know, I've heard him reported of as this, you know, basically a Washington Post, I think he had a title there of something, like he, he was of the Washington Post. It turns out he wrote 20 columns at 500 bucks a pop. He's been paid a total of like $10,000 from them. Obviously, his key sources of income were elsewhere. And obviously, he was involved in all sorts of activities that weren't being a journalist. So, you know, Murphy's kind of right to simply look at this guy as a hero, as a martyr of journalism. We're entering this new phase where journalism is just this one kind of influence node where anyone who wants to kind of get in the mix can like, you know, the Post can do all this amazing journalism and have full time reporters doing these incredible investigations. But then they've got this opinion section that's just hungry for content and they want to expand their their global coverage. And this guy comes in who seems pretty well informed and positioned to do so. And they had no idea of everyone who he was trying to get money from, talking to, getting money from, like, you know. I really feel like that's almost like a um, the weak link in the chain of, of their masthead, of their credibility. And I, I see that happening all over the place, Rick, where getting an editorial published by a reputable news organization, no one does that because that's their career anymore. You know what I mean? Like anybody who's coming to the op-ed section has some other – either they want to be heard because they've got some opinion that they think is really important or they're carrying water for some interest or another or they're trying to like just you know burnish their brand for their speaking career or something. But I feel like – it's a real liability for these news organizations. You know, it happens more and more that we're finding out that the editors were completely in the dark as to what these columnists were coming in with and where they were getting it from. Well, in academia, I mean, and it, maybe it's pro forma, but you're supposed to kind of declare and disclose your interests going into talking about a given subject. And, and sometimes I wonder if we should make that more prominent with regard to journalism. Instead of... St- you know, holding on to this notion of objectivity, which, you know, has its own history, some of it problematic, 
we should just say, well, I, we all have a cluster of interests in which we operate. And, and yeah, as you say, Khashoggi seemed to have this very complicated uh, playing both sides against the middle and if you will. And where did that get him? Right. I mean, he's dead, uh, I, which, you know, seems to be all kind of lost in what uh, Murphy had to say. I mean, again, I said earlier, I started in the 90s, but it used to be considered a sin for any journalist to leave journalism and go on to become a a PR hack or a media relations person for a politician. And it's way more common now, almost routine, you might argue. And they used to call that going over the wall. And, you know, Khashoggi, uh, uh, he took on certain assignments and roles for the Saudi state. He cultivated these connections with that Qatar-funded group. I mean, does any of that actually dilute or diminish what happened to him ultimately? I mean, it seems it seems like Murphy just sort of completely elides or ignores that. And you know, look at look at Peter Kent, right? Conservative, used to be deputy editor and, and lead anchor for global television news. Danielle Smith, one time radio host, went on to lead the Wild Rose to defeat, then went back to radio. The late Ralph Klein, whose, uh, shall we say, vision continues to make life interesting for all Albertans and beyond. He was a city <laughs> hall reporter, right, before he became premier. So, I mean, I don't know. The asshole in me wonders whether anyone would write a similarly premised column about Murphy where someone to brutally assassinate him. You guys published Conrad Black's premature a bit. Maybe you could do the same here. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a pitch? Uh, <laughs> All right. <laughs> I just have to say, I'm surprised this Rex Murphy column wasn't nominated as one of the candidates for free thought awesomeness. Rick Herb, thank you. Thank you. It's been great cutting short with you. That is your Canada Land Shortcuts. Email me about it. I'm at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything you send. We are on Twitter at Canada Land. Rick Harp, where can people find you and where can they find your podcast? They can do it all through mediaindigena.com. If they like the Twitter, we're there at mediaindigena, I-N-D-I-G-E-N-A. Our website is canadalandshow.com. There's uh, all kinds of stuff up there, including our collection of the best and worst tweets of 2018. (laughs) Check that out. This episode is produced by David Crosby. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication of Canada Land is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. And if you like what we do, and if you'd like to receive ad-free versions of all of our podcasts, please support us on Patreon. 